This is Acts 2, 1 to 21. And um, in this lesson, if there is anything that comes up in your thinking that wasn't clear in what we talk about today, we have that little suggestion box, okay? Because the um, fulfilling of the Holy Spirit is a hot topic. But what I'm going to do is I'm sticking strictly to what our passage is talking about. And we're going to pull stuff out of it and look at it. So I want you to all come this morning into this study um, with just a open, uh, teachable spirit. Weigh it, because God's Holy Spirit is the teacher here, okay? And just, just fall afresh on us. We live in times that are unprecedented. Therefore, however anyone kind of understood something a hundred years ago, as we get closer to the end times, God's going to reveal things, and we're going to see that he's going to just unfold things in a timely manner, okay? So with that being said, that little disclaimer, let's dive into this. We find it in chapter uh, 2. We find them. They are waiting for Jesus to come. They were obedient. I mean, waiting for the Spirit to come. He had ascended, and he told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait there, and that's where they're hanging out. And their numbers are multiplying and everything. And we come to the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a... Uh, Jewish holiday, they celebrated um, Passover, and then 50 days later after Passover was Pentecost, where they would bring their harvest. Um, It's almost commemorating uh, God took them out of the captivity in Egypt, and he brought them into the land of milk and honey. And all the, all the harvest and all the fruits and all the things that he was bringing them from captivity into, you know, a paradise. It's a picture of bringing us from this world into paradise, eternal life forever, okay? So these are pictures and shadows of things that sometimes haven't quite happened yet. There's always something that's happened, and it's a shadow of maybe an eternal event that's happening. So here we are at Pentecost, 50 days from the harvest, and it's a joyful time, it's a thankful time, um, a lot of gratitude and thanksgiving for all the abundance that God had given them. Now also remember that the apostles, the disciples were there, and they were, their job was to take the work of Christ, what he had done on the cross and the resurrection and the new life and the whole story of Jesus, and take that and continue on with it. Jesus wasn't going to stay with us forever. He ascended and he's at the right hand of the Father, but his spirit now comes and indwells every believer to carry on the testimony of Christ. So they're in this room. And we find when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place because they all came into Jerusalem and they're here in this house. And suddenly, without knowing, suddenly there came from heaven, which tells you that it was something they identified as it had to be supernatural because it was something that they couldn't really have a familiarity with or define it. From heaven, a sound, 
not a feel. It wasn't like this wind was blowing in a wind tunnel. It was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. They were all sitting. So this noise was all around them. And, and they're, as best as they could use in the human language, a mighty rushing wind. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right. This is the day that the prophets had talked about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we'll get into that when we get into what Peter's talking about. A couple things are happening there. They heard something. They saw the little um, fiery things happen in there. And then they began to speak. Okay? Let's look at the... There's descriptive words here. There's adjectives. But we want to look at the, the nouns. Okay? A mighty rushing wind. That's a noun, the wind. Wind has a rich biblical background. In Hebrew and Greek and in Latin, the word for spirit was also used for wind or breath. Okay, In Hebrew, you can't even say the word for spirit without sounding like a breath. The word is a, a, a ruah, ruah. That's a breath, ruah. So if we take a look at wind, because that's the word uh, that they used here, a breath, and look back in Scripture, we go to Genesis 1, and we know that in creation, you know, very second verse, creation, the Spirit of God was moving over the, the deep waters, the darkness, moving a dynamic breath of God, blowing across the water, hovering, hovering over the water before God started to create things with the days. So the wind, the Spirit, same word, is, is hovering over in creation, was there. If we go over just a chapter into Genesis 2, 7, we find where God's breath or the spirit is again in Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from dust, from the ground, and breathed, same word, into his nostrils, the breath of life. The breath of life. And the man became a living creature. So in Genesis, we have this breath, this spirit, the breath of God, breathing life into something that was dead. There was no life. He formed him, pilot dust, whatever he does, made him, and then he breathed life into him. That's an important thing to remember as we look at that, okay? Man was just dead matter until God breathed life into him, became a living being. Moving up now into the New Testament, we come to Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus 
in John 3. And Nicodemus is saying, you know, how can, you know, eternal life, what do I need to do here? And, and Jesus says, you need to be born again. And so Nicodemus is perplexed. What do you mean born again? How was man born the first time? God breathed life into him, right? So to be born again like that, God's going to breathe life into you again, the spiritual life. And, and so just like Adam in the first time, God's spirit, breath of God, is going to be breathed into somebody. Okay? The sound of a mighty rushing wind from above. The coming of, it's almost like, I mean, what an exciting time. I would have loved to have been there in that room. But that's okay. We've got good times ahead of us that are going to be fascinating. Um, to have the creative power of God he was inaugurating a new era in which men and women will be brought to spiritual life. Up to this point, the Spirit of God would land on someone like he landed on Saul or he, you know, was hanging out with, with David. He would, they'd make presents and stuff like that. Or God would breathe and, and give them some kind of a revelation. But it was never an internal dwelling. It was never permanent. We know when we become Christians now that we are sealed with God's Spirit. He comes and lives in us and nothing can take that out. Old Testament, before Christ, it wasn't like that. This is the beginning of an era. This is something new. This is, this is Jesus is in heaven now. He's sending the helper. And now we are in a new age here, a new time in history when the church is going to be his witness. Okay? We have work to do. And so that breath is in there. It's the, it's the creative power of God that they were hearing just to make coming on men and women to give them spiritual life. It says that the word filled with the Holy Spirit is used twice there in those first verses. First, the house was filled with it, and then they were filled with it. Filled, indwelling, it came into the house, it came into their dwelling place, and then it came to within them. It's a different kind of filling than being baptized by the Spirit, okay? When we become believers in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins and declare the fact that we need to have a Savior, he, he, he takes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, and the Spirit of God lives within us. That's a one-time shot. You can't lose that. That's good. But that does not mean that we're filled completely with the Holy Spirit. I wish it would, I wish it would be like that, because then I wouldn't have to worry about sin, but... We have free, free will, and we, we sometimes quench the Spirit. We sometimes ignore the Spirit, God's nudging of, of, of doing the right thing. So this is a different thing than that. A Spirit-filled person, what happened to them here? They were filled with the Spirit. Verse 4, filled with the Holy Spirit, and what did they do? They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The reaction to being filled with the Spirit of God is to speak. It is to um, testify verbally. Think about it as um, God's Spirit is setting us on fire inside, and it's like we've just got to talk about Jesus. You know, you become a believer at the first time, you want to tell everybody about Jesus, or tell something about Jesus, or give credit to Jesus. It's Letting that come out, and, and how we let things come out is verbally. The goal here for the church now is to talk about Jesus, to be his witness, to share the good news, to go out into Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, doing what? 
telling people about Jesus. And that's the spirit is, a, is the, the vehicle that empowers us to do that. The goal is that everyone hears about Jesus. So that's the first diet. That's the first noun we're going to look at is wind. And then we get into a second noun here. And it's not tongues. Tongues is more of a descriptive word here. The word we're going to look at is fire. They were divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested. So it was this shape like a fire. You know how fire laps up? You know, you have those kind of things go and happen and everything. Let's look at what scripture says about fire. When the Holy Spirit or the breath of God enters a person, it's like this impulsion or energy or, or burning sensation that we want to speak it out. And we use our tongue to speak it out. So our tongue is speaking, um, and they make an analogy with it as being fire put on... Uh, a consuming fire, a purifying fire. When we speak the truth of Scripture, isn't that purifying? God's word is purifying. So, fire also has the analogy of being um, the presence of God. So it's almost like our tongues get on fire in a way. In Genesis 15, when God was making his covenant with Abraham... And he put him to sleep, put him into that deep sleep, and he cut up those animals there. And then God, it's the presence of God walked down the thing. What was God, what was his manifestation? Was a flaming torch. Remember, a flaming torch coming, and it was a unilateral um, uh, covenant. It wasn't dependent on Adam, Abraham at all. It wasn't dependent on man. It was only dependent on God himself. He was making this covenant on, on himself. And that was a flaming torch that came down. We see also in the Old Testament, we see fire and thunder on the Mount Sinai when God was talking to Moses, the holy presence of God. It's fire. Hebrews 12, 29, what does it say about God? God is a consuming fire. So put those two things together, the breath of God and the fire, the presence of God, into the, the, the language, the speaking, they began to speak. It's a communication. It's a testimony of Jesus Christ. Fire does two things. It brings light and it brings warmth. We have the convenience now of electricity, but back when this was being written, fire was very important. Fire brought um, light, warmth. There's an enlightenment. When God's Spirit speaks these words in God's word, in God's truth here, it's an enlightenment that happens. It's like, oh man, you ever read scripture? It's like, wow, that really, that makes sense to me now. And it's a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. I hate that word fuzzy, but it's like, oh, it makes sense. I get it. It's almost like a peace. It's like a, oh, that is, when truth comes and is unfolded, it's like, yeah, there's almost like a settling down into a soft armchair or something. John Wesley says this upon hearing the gospel 
He says, quote, my heart was strangely warmed. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. If you ever witness to somebody about Christ, you just see it in them. It's like, wow, that makes sense to me. I, I get that. So a fire, wind and fire is happening here. So what are the effects of what happened in verses 5 to 13? We've got effects of what's going on here. Well, there were Jewish Jews from all over, all different parts, because it was pretty much a commandment for them to come. This was one of the feasts that they had to celebrate. So there were million, you know, half a million people in, in Jerusalem, you know, great for you know, all the commerce and stuff that was happening there. They were bringing, it was celebratory, all this stuff was going on. But I want to point out some repetition in these verses. That's important, because when it's said, it's a good thing. But when it's said three times, we better pay attention to it, right? Three times. They heard the gospel in their own language. They heard the gospel in their native language, and they heard the gospel in their own tongues. What did they hear? They heard about Jesus Christ. That's what came out. So we have, in verse 6, that the sound of the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now think about it. They came from all over the place. Different dialect, different, different language, different tongues. They came from all over the place. They probably all knew the common language that they were speaking there. But when it says their own language, it would be like if I were to go to... France, and I heard someone, and I kind of learned French a little bit, but then I heard someone speaking English. I'm like, oh, you're speaking in my, my native language, okay? I also knew how to speak French to communicate. So these people that came here, they were, they were educated. They knew kind of, you know, um, the language of what was going on there, but to hear their specific or, or here's a better thing. This might be a better example. When I moved out here from California, and I started listening to people, mostly from Tennessee, okay, because <laughs> it's different when you cross that line. It's different, Janie. <laughs> I can understand Cece better than I can understand you, and it says cross the line sometimes. There's a, and then if they got a wad of, of chew in their mouth, well, it's, forget that, right? So... They were still speaking English, but it was a different kind of dialect in a way. It was hard to understand. So whatever was going on here, these people were like, yeah, you're speaking, you know, hillbilly to me or whatever it is. I get this. But they were amazed at all this. They were speaking in their own language. They heard the message in their own language. And from that, we have it also three different times, their response to that. And they were hearing, I don't want to lose this, they were hearing the mighty works of God. They weren't hearing about, oh, this is what I had for breakfast. Or they were hearing about the mighty works of God. This is what was coming out of 
of the disciples' mouths, talking about Jesus, sharing about that. So they're hearing about the mighty works of God. Who knows what they got into? The parting of the Red Sea, the raising of the dead. I mean, I don't know, but they were hearing mighty works of God. Creation, there's plenty of mighty works of God. They were hearing it in their own dialect. They were bewildered from verse 6 and verse 7. They were amazed and astonished. And in verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed. So those are conflicting terms there. Bewildered, amazed, but astonished, amazed, perplexed. What's going on? They understood the words. They understood what was being, they understood the words. They, they communicated with, yeah, the parting of the Red Sea or the raising of Lazarus, whatever. But how? How was this happening? Because it was the Galileans who were speaking to them. Well, who the heck were the Galileans? Rural, uneducated, you know, backwoods. They didn't know. How on earth did these people hear about how we speak here and that? They're not learned men. What's going on here? Again, this is a miracle. This is the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. I had a friend in um, my college days back in California. They went to the same youth group. And, you know, everybody gets married to each other in the youth groups, you know. They do that. Back when youth groups were big. And uh, Mike and Murph Gaston got married, and they um, went to be missionaries in France. They didn't know French. They took a little bit of French, but, but his wife, Murph, would, Kathy Murphy, we called her Murph, she said to me, when Mike would get in the pulpit, it was fluent French. I think that's a speaking in tongues. Fluent French. He couldn't talk about, he couldn't do that when he was going to the store and buying. He kind of fumbled through it like anybody else, kind of French is a second language kind of. But um, she said it was just amazing to just roll off of his tongue. So how did this happen? What was going on here? Um, the results of this is that they took the message of the gospel back to their homelands. With you should have come to Pentecost this year. <laughs> whoa, whoa! What an amazing thing! And shared it with everybody. Just what they experienced. Your commentary points out that it was like a reverse Tower of Babel. In a way, it is. In the Tower of Babel, at that time, they all spoke one language, and they were all becoming, trying to become, you know, powerful and not need God and building this tower. We're going to be like God, and we're going to build it up to God. And God said, no, this isn't happening. I told you to multiply and fill the earth. So I'm just going to just do that for you because you disobeyed. And he had, he created all the languages then. Linguists today do not know how language is created. They can study it. You check this out. They can study it. But they get to a point where, well, we just don't, we just don't, it just happened. Well, we know how it happened. God created that. He created that. So this was God, and now he pulled them all together to the little one spot and then gave them the message to bring back. This is what it's all about. It's all about Jesus. Nothing else really matters in the world. It's all about Jesus. So they went and they brought it back to their own countries, and the gospel spread, okay? 
It spread like fire, and it was fanned by the breath of God. This is what this Pentecost is all about. When the Holy Spirit comes in power, a person speaks boldly about Jesus. Now, we have the Holy Spirit as believers, but when we talk about this kind of feeling of it, we're just hot to trot about Jesus. We're just going to talk about Jesus, okay? It's interesting, to me it was anyways, verse 13. Because some people, you know, believe, we're going to find out later, and other people were mocked and whatever, but... Verse 13 says, but others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Now, a lot of the commentators that I read kind of blew over that, and I'm thinking, why? To me, that just jumped out at me. What is, (laughs) you know, Jesus talks about putting new wine in old wineskins. What happens? The wineskins burst. And if they're saying here, they are filled with new wine, because they're saying that they were drunk, but I think there was such joy and amazement and just, woo, just kind of happy, happy, happy. And if you're not happy, 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 you're like the designated driver watching everybody else, right? <laughs> They're all having a good time, and I gotta, I'm the designated driver tonight. So I didn't get it. But they were just so filled with joy. They were there being maybe silly or whatever, filled with new wine. And I'm thinking, yeah. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a new covenant, the covenant of grace. You can't put that into the old covenant of law. You had to be a new creature in Christ to fill that. Anyways, that's my two cents on that. Christianity is meant to be a spreading flame. It's not meant to say, okay, I I believe it in my own heart. My faith is personal to me. Then it's not Christianity. If your faith is not something that you see value in, that you want to tell other people about, then it's maybe not Christianity. You're being fooled. So, let's go on. Now, this next part, um, we have... I'm just going to wrap it up with two points today. This is the second point. For some reason, our study cut the sermon in in half. Um, This is the first Christian sermon... Verses 14 to the end of the chapter 41. Um, they're going to divide it in half, which is cool. No, 40. No, they didn't even do that. 40, yeah, the sermon is to 41. Um, we're only looking at t- t- verse 21, so 14 to 21. But I want to say a couple things about this first Christian sermon. Peter is at Pentecost, and this sermon is can be a model for how pastors can do sermons today. This sermon resulted in great blessings. Not all preachers are filled with the Spirit. Not everyone can teach the Word and have it be as dynamic as others can teach the Word filled by the Spirit. Okay? Satan knows Scripture forwards and backwards. Okay, um, and not every time somebody gets up to speak about, preach about the word of God, are they filled with. So I think even with that, it kind of fluctuates. I don't know. It's God. We're not going to tell God how to do it. We're not going to tell God who's sitting out there to hear it, right? We present the truth, and it's God's spirit that brings them into the truth. 
But this is the first sermon, Christian sermon that's out there, okay? Peter grabs their attention in verse 14. So everyone's like, ooh, what's going on, what's going on? But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. He's grabbing their attention. He stands up. He says, hey, over here, listen to me. I'm going to tell you what's going on. So the focal point is now on him. Can you still hear me okay, Wendy? Because my microphone's like going up into my nose. So, no? Okay. It's creeping. It's creeping. <laughs> Janie, I need a new mic. <laughs> okay. As long as, you, as long as it's recording, I'm good. I'm going to ignore it. So, a couple of things here, and, that, and then we'll finish up. Then we'll be done. In this sermon, it was centered on the Bible It was a Christ-centered sermon, and it was done in bold and fearless preaching. Those are the three things we're going to look at here. Okay. Peter, we know Peter studied the Old Testament. We talked about that last week while they were waiting. Peter knew he he was a fisherman. He wasn't learned, you know. He wasn't like Paul. So he had studied the scriptures and stuff, so he knew this. So Jesus gave them the example when he said to himself, when he would reference all the way back. The scriptures talk about me. The scriptures talk about me. I came to fulfill the scriptures. So all these hints, if you want to know what's going on, look at the scriptures. Look at the Old Testament. See what's going on here. Come to fulfill them. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus with those disciples, what was he talking to those boys about? He began with Moses and all the prophets and explained everything through scripture. Okay? Preaching has got to be grounded in scripture. If you're going to church and hearing a sermon about your marriage or how to handle your money, you're not getting it. Those things are okay, but it's not preaching the word of God. It can't be a substitute to it, okay? I mean, this book has a lot to say about that kind of stuff, about relationships and stuff, but... But preaching filled with the, with the, the, is about Jesus and what he did and, and how we can live like him and how we can emulate him and how his spirit is transforming us into him to be like him. So it's got to be centered on the scriptures, okay? So Peter does this. He uses scripture and he's got this three-point thing and Unfortunately, just one of his points is covered here, but he covers Joel, he goes into Psalm 16, and he goes into Psalm 110. We're just going to look at Joel 1, Joel Joel 2. And he starts out, and he starts to tell them, this is what's going on, and he he quotes part of Joel. Okay, Joel is a short little book. What was going on? Well... We just talked about Pentecost. We just talked about how it's a time where people are bringing the first fruits of their harvest and they're thanking God and they're grateful and everything and it's a joyous time how God took them out of captivity and brought them into the land of milk and honey and we're grateful and we're going to remember this. Joel is talking to the people at a time where it was devastating locust invasion. The locusts had eaten every single thing that they had. And there's a couple different kinds of locusts. What the cutting locusts left behind, the swarming locusts has eaten. And what the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts had eaten. And what the hopping locusts had left, the destroying locusts had eaten. They just wiped out their harvest. 
They had nothing, wiped it out. Down in chapter 1, verse 11, the harvest of the field has perished. And in chapter 2, Joel goes on to tell them, well, he uses fire too in verse 19, the fire has devoured, consuming fire. There's a judgment. Joel is talking about a judgment here. God, God is a holy God, and he demands holy life and living and and, and worshiping him. There's one way to do life good, and that's God's way. And man forever throughout history, no, I don't want to do God's way. I'm going to do this way. I'm going to, no, I'm going to, I'm, you know, I don't care what God says about marriage. I'm going to do it this way. God created marriage. He knows how it works. He knows the right way to do it. Well, no, it doesn't matter. I'm going to do it this way for just an example. So this is a time when Israel was being judged and their harvest was wiped out. And Joel goes on to say, repent. It's a call to repentance. You need to repent. In chapter 2, the day of the Lord is coming. It is near a day of darkness and gloom. He's telling them, this is bad, you guys. This is really bad. You don't have food. You know what? But something worse is coming. Something worse is coming. So you need to repent. You need to return to the Lord. He gets into talking about that in chapter 2, verse 21. He says, but there's hope. This is it. This is about Jesus. Fear not, O land. Be, jo- be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. That's Jesus. Those are the wonderful works that God has done, and that's in verse 21. Down in 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, and the Lord will pour out his spirit. And then it gets into our quote here, what he quoted. This is the first uh, scripture, the first verses that talk about, it's very most clear and obvious, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Peter references that here, which is telling us that that's what's going on here. The outpouring, what was, what was happening there in Jerusalem is what Joel had prophesied about. It was beginning now in this church age and coming to full fruition in the millennium kingdom. We're not there yet, but there are parts of it that's happening now. It's being poured out. Pouring out is like a, you know, kind of slow, but then pouring out till it's full. So it's not fulfilled yet, if you can kind of grasp that idea. Then he goes on, and we'll touch this next week. It goes on to Psalm 16, 8 to 11, where he, he talks about David looking ahead to the Messiah that his body would be raised in incorruption. Jesus is the incorruptible Messiah. And then for his third point, he does Psalm 110, verse 1, which is in the Old Testament, it is the most quoted or referenced verse in Scripture. Well, my Lord says to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and make until I make your enemies your footstool. The most quoted or referenced verse in Scripture. Peter adds that in here. So we'll get into what all that means. Referencing who? Jesus. It's about Jesus. Now this was kind of interesting for those of you who like numbers. I found it kind of fascinating. Others can just blow it off. But if you look at Peter's sermon, the whole thing, There are 13 verses quoting the Old Testament. Now, I know verses are not divinely 
whatever, but this is just an interesting thing. 13 verses that are quoting scripture. There are 11 verses of exposition or 11 verses of Peter talking plus two verses of application. Okay? So what this commentary where I got this out of is saying, the emphasis isn't on what man is saying or man's interpretation of it is. The bulk of it is on Scripture. The bulk of it's on Scripture. What God says and how what God does with what he says is far more important than anything man can come up with. Okay? And that's the work of the Spirit. So it has to be centered on Scripture. Secondly, it has to be a Christ-centered sermon, which, duh, if we're using the Bible and the Bible's centered on Jesus, well then, what's that mean? It's going to be centered on Christ. So when the Holy Spirit comes, empowers somebody, and speaks the word of God, it's going to be about Jesus. Two verses that talk about this. John 15, 26, Jesus is saying, Jesus is telling them, but when the helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who, will proceed, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit is going to talk about Jesus. That's the testimony. Okay? Then flipping over a page or a chapter to John 16, verse 14. Well, 13. Jesus is talking again. When the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you, speak to you, make known to you, declare to you the things, because that's going to be from a Spirit-filled person declaring it to you, right? Declare to you the things that are to come, he will glorify me, for he will know, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Declare is in there twice. He will glorify me. He will make Jesus known. It's all about spreading the gospel. It's an authentic message. Now, we know it's an authentic message when someone is filled with the Spirit and is talking about and, and reading the Word of God and, and communicating the word of God, and even our way we live is communicating Christ. It's authentic because Satan cannot imitate. He can, he can imitate miracles. Satan can do fancy woo-woo-woo-woo things, okay? But Satan cannot point someone to Christ, can they? So we know it's authentic when the, when the focal point is Christ. Satan cannot, he knows scripture, he knows it, but he's not going to point someone to Christ. He's not going to be glorified. He's not going to declare that God sent his son to die for our sins, and those who trust in him will find forgiveness and a new life by the Holy Spirit. That's the message, okay? The final thing is that filled with the Spirit, it's going to be a boldness and a fearlessness. 
God will put you into places and send you places where you dare not would go. But if you're filled with the Spirit and you've been prayed up or you know what that means or whatever, just get me out of the way, God, and just go ahead and use me. There's a boldness and a fearlessness that comes from that. Peter, who was he preaching to? They had just killed Jesus. This group of people just a few weeks later had said what? Crucify him. Crucify him. And here's Peter filled with the Spirit, boldly, fearlessly getting up and standing in in front of these people. This is what's going on. They were not afraid. Why were they not afraid? Because Jesus was with them. He was seated at the right hand of the Father, and he was directing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as the preaching of the gospel was going around. That's what it's about. Christianity is meant to be a spreading fire. And we may think, well, there's, everyone's heard about Jesus. We live in the Bible Belt. Everyone knows about Jesus. You know what? My experience is, no, they don't. I had a woman a couple weeks ago and shared the gospel with her, and she said, and she grew up here. No one ever explained it to me that way. We never know. We never know. Had somebody else a couple years ago, they claimed to be a Christian couple, and we were just stuck. So I was using Christian principles with them, biblical principles, and we were stuck, stuck, stuck. She was getting it. He wasn't. I finally asked him, well, what's your testimony? Tell me how you came to know the Lord. Well, it wasn't. Whatever he did in college was some other Jesus, you know. So then we talked, presented the gospel. I never saw him again. But now she knew. She was unequally yoked. And you know what she said? I, of, I often suspected that I was unequally yoked. Okay, so there are plenty of people out there that don't know the gospel. And it's not up to us to decide, oh, maybe they'll hear it or not. It's up to us to just prayerfully, submissively, be prepared always to give your testimony in season and out of season, to be prepared to, to share the word because it is a spreading flame. God, thank you that you, you've equipped us. You've called us and you've equipped us. So help us to yield to the power of that spirit for you to be glorified. We love you, Jesus. Amen.